Welcome. You're listening to the Gideon Warrior Radio Network. Look for us on TalkShoe.com. Type in keyword Gideon Warrior Network. And you can find us and other Israelite speakers at ChristianAmericanMinistries.com and AngloIsraelTruth.com. Please remember, your free will gifts and offerings help us to continue laboring in the vineyard. Please consider visiting our support page. We thank you for visiting our network and sites. It is our prayer you'll be edified by them. Here's the message, and thanks for listening. The title of this message is America's Constitutional Idolatry. The word idolatry, as defined in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, is the worship of or veneration of idols, images, or anything made by hands or which is not God. Secondary definition, excessive attachment or veneration for anything or that which borders on adoration, end quote. I'd like to begin discussion in this series with this introduction and caveat. First, nothing plagues the children of Jacob Israel more than ignorance of the law, and in many respects an indifference to the fundamental truth of the source and legislative intent of law. Many in the Christian community the world over can scarcely read any New Testament gospel text or the subsequent letters of the various apostles in their correct context of the totality of the historical scriptural record. But rather, they have been conditioned to believe what Antichrists have always believed, that law is for the educated, and certainly the Word of God, a document of divine laws of God, is first sought in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, and the historical record of the breach of that divine law, in the subsequent scriptural record, is for the most part not to be understood by lay people. Subsequently, the descendants of Jacob Israel are not trained in the law, and are inadequately equipped for presenting the case for the application of divine law. If one dares embark on the subject of challenging one's preconceived ideas about the Christian nature of the Constitution for the United States of America, you're most often met with hostility and incredulity at your uninformed insinuation and will find a number of well-used quotes of the framers of the Constitution hurled your way. However, our God in the flesh, our Emmanuel, born of a woman, Matthew 5, told us, you shall know them by their fruits. After much consideration and study, it is my belief we have to take time to study divine law, and upon doing so, we, that is the progeny of Jacob Israel, will see the error of our way. I want to first begin with outlining five fundamental axioms of law. Now, these are mine. You can accept them or reject them. Others, I know, as I have read other writings and so forth, have conveyed or written axioms or principles along similar thoughts and lines. The expectation is not that that this particular line of thinking or these particular axioms are somehow indifferent to another or greater than another. The expectation really is that we first endeavor to contemplate the relevancy of the axiom as we consider the form, function, and application of law. 
In doing so, one should be convinced of the efficacy of the principle or the axiom. The first axiom is this. All law is theological in nature and reflects a moral or non-moral presumption. Secondly, it is fundamentally impossible to disassociate law from a theological or moral and non-moral presumption. Thirdly, the source of law theologically appraised is religious and changes established by the source is reflective of the expansion or contraction of the religious belief of the source. Now, we might want to at this time define religious. Webster's 28 simply defines it as devoted belief, devoted practice. So in other words, devoted belief and practice is religious. So let's take number three again. The source of law theologically appraised is religious. In other words, it is devoted, it is of devoted belief and practice. So theologically appraised is religious and changes established by the source is reflective of the expansion or contraction of the religious belief of the source. For example, in Exodus 3.15, God tells us, I am that I am. That is the source. Isaiah 43.10 says, Before me no God was formed, nor none after me. That is a source of origination. God's word says, I am the Lord, and no one else besides me. Well, there again is a source. Christ said at John 10.30, I and the Father are one. There is the source. Also at John 8.58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Also, God said, I change not. Malachi 3.6, Hebrews 13.8. Christ says the same. He is the, he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. So these are the source, if you will, or the source or origination of those statements. And so, therefore, that source of law, theologically appraised, is religious. And, it, and any changes established by the source is reflective of the expansion or contraction of the religious belief of the source. Well, if God says that I am that I am, and he says that I change not, he says that before Abraham was, I am, you have now established that that source does not change. All right, on to number four. The source, that is the origin of law, disallows objective or subjective tolerance for law which originates from a differing source. Fifth, other law sources are foreign and hostile. Now let's take a minute to go back and review each of these axioms and expound upon them. First, all law is theological in nature and reflects a moral or non-moral presumption. Consider, if you will, law, if it is not theological in nature and it is just law, does not law represent or reflect somebody's morality or somebody's non-morality. So therefore, all law, therefore, is theological in nature because it reflects 
either a moral or a non-moral presumption. Secondly, it is fundamentally impossible to disassociate law from a theological or moral or non-moral presumption. So again, can we say that law is somehow separated from a moral or a non-moral presumption? Whatever this law is, it is trying to enforce some moral or non-moral presumption based on what the law is and who it is, in fact, that is proposing that law. So it's fundamentally impossible in that sense to disassociate law from the theological or moral or non-moral presumption. That's axiom two. Third, the source of law theologically appraised is religious. Again, what was the definition of religious? Devoted belief and practice. So the source of law theologically appraised is requiring devoted belief, devoted practice. And changes established by the source is reflective of the expansion or the contraction of that religious or devoted belief and practice of the source. All right, now number four, the source or the origin of law disallows objective or subjective tolerance for law which originates from a differing source. Let's look at this now. If the source or the origin of law is God, he therefore disallows objective or subjective tolerance for laws which originate from a different source. So therefore, this axiom, the source, meaning the origin of law, disallows objective or subjective tolerance for law which originates from a differing source. Very, very fundamental. The fifth axiom, once again, just expounding on it, other law sources are foreign and hostile. So, in this case here, God has a law. He says, our laws are foreign and hostile to him. If man creates law and uses law in a practice and a manner that is foreign and hostile to God, then that source of law is obviously not within the purview of what God has established in his divine immutable laws. So the law of God is complete. Love, we are told in Scripture, is the fulfilling of the law. The divine immutable laws encompasses a multitude of particulars. If we exercise an intention in violation of these particulars, we sin. Sin is the transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. Love, which fulfills the particulars of divine law, is opposed to sin. As we said, transgression of the law is sin. Otherwise, it cannot be love, and certainly not perfect love. Therefore, the heart which embodies our passion and desire must be restrained by the intellect to control and direct the external conduct. In that way, manner, and form, the law is spiritual. Therefore, if a constitution, which is a source of law, 
is a living, breathing document, it is expanding or contracting by the religious, remember, theological, moral, or immoral, devoted belief and practice. So it is expanding or contracting by the religious beliefs of the originators. In America, this source of law is we, the people. Now, prior to this source of law, we, the people, that is, in 1789, at the advent of the Constitution for the United States of America, from the 1500 to 1600, 1600 to 1700, and then 1700 to 1789, at the advent of the Constitution for the United States of America, nearly 300 years where the colonial charters governed the people and those people governed themselves largely under the principles of the divine immutable laws of God. They wrote charters such as the New Haven, Connecticut uh, Constitutional Charter in 1639, and they wrote in those charters, literally adopting much of the entire biblical record as far as uh, it being a governing document over them. In fact, uh, one of them adopted the entire Bible as their constitution. i thinking that might have been Massachusetts rather than Connecticut, but could have been Connecticut. But anyhow, what transpired was a shift. By 1789, that source of law, which was God, was circumvented. And it changed, and a new source, we the people, was enthroned. Now, there are some that would immediately begin to challenge that idea, and they would have little in which to challenge it upon. They would tend to use a lot of quotes from framers of the Constitution and so forth. But the bottom line is, what we have to do is get our minds out of the preconceived ideas and the preconceived notions of what we have been taught to believe and earnestly look at what has actually transpired. First John 5, 2-3 says, By this we know that we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the blood of God that we keep his commandments. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17-19 to Christ told us that he had not come to abolish the law. There are a number of churches the world over who have been repeatedly emphasizing that we are under grace. We need only to love God and neighbor. Well, very rarely do they define love. Love itself needs to be guided. Love in an inordinate desire or sense, is not to be love at all, but it is merely a satisfaction of one's pleasures or sensories and would be lust. So when we look at scriptures such as 1 John 5, 2, 3, which says, By this we know that we love God and keep his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. This is a guide to that love. These scriptures are a guide and a description of what that love must entail. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40 tells us, There are two commands. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and love thy neighbor as thyself. So one has to ask, well, how is one to demonstrate love toward God? 
besides the scripture that we just cited, there are a number of ways in which this is to be done. One of the first places that we can turn to in beginning to understand how to demonstrate love toward God is the Ten Commandments. It breaks down into two fundamental categories, that first being the relationship of God and to God and one's love toward God and the relationship toward neighbor. We can find that from Matthew 22:37-40. The application of divine law is obligatory upon the conduct of man. The benefit is prosperity, relief from oppression and crime, worldwide respect, military victory, habitable cities, and it glorifies God, the creator. The divine immutable laws of God are universal but given specifically to Jacob Israel as a servant nation to bring about their universal application. The principal operations of divine law is cause and effect. The effect of its operation is predicated upon and will naturally follow the cause, be it for good or be it for evil. The natural operation of law makes the putting away or doing away with the law impossible as the cause and effect is fundamentally the spirit of natural law. Administration of these divine laws is the only function authorized by God, the theocratic giver of the law. At Isaiah 33:22, we can establish this fact, and there is no power but from God. For he, Yahweh, is our judge. The Lord is our judge, and the Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. By this, we can rest assured his law will adequately protect us individually, in our homes and in our economic endeavors, and in our national interests. To understand and confirm this servant people or nation and its duty before God and the world It is necessary to identify and follow this servant people or nation. The Bible is the record of that, and it begins with a covenant between Abraham and Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, who fathered twelve sons, known as the twelve tribes of Israel. From these twelve sons, nations would be formed. These nations were then destined to be a blessing to the world. Moses, at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8, confirmed the ratification of the divine immutable laws as given by God unto Jacob Israel. The cause. Now, let us read the effect. Micah 4, 2 tells us, quote, Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, into the house of the God of Jacob, and he shall teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, that scripture is a little bit beyond the book of Deuteronomy, which I first referenced there, Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8. But you'll find in Deuteronomy chapter 8, excuse me, 28, is a record of the cause and the effect of the divine law application. It is expressed as blessings and curses. Further, in Deuteronomy 13, verse 11, and 21, 21, it conveys proper application of the law results or has this as its effect. Quote, 
so shalt thou put away evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. End quote. Additionally, Deuteronomy 28.58-61 conveys, If you do not take care to practice the whole of the things of this law written in this book, and to reverence the glory of this magnificent revelation of your ever-living God, for the ever-living will make your own punishments and the punishments of your posterity astounding by great afflictions and diseases and sickness, prostrations, and will turn upon you all the maladies of the Mitzurites, meaning the Egyptians, which you feared when present with them. And they shall stick to you besides numerous diseases and many plagues that are not written in the record of this law. End quote. That, of course, is translated from the Farrar Fenton. You see, it matters not whether one agrees with it or not, or believes it or not. The God of Jacob Israel says, quote, As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out, will I rule over you, and I will cause you to pass under the rod, and will bring you into the bond of the covenant, end quote. Ezekiel 20, and 37. Now, as we get into the meat of the matter of this series, entitled, America's Constitutional Idolatry. This is not the first type of series of messages uh, that has ever been done on the subject, or nor that has ever been written about. There are numerous uh, authors who have written about the unbiblical nature of the United States Constitution. There are many who have done messages. Uh, there's uh, Dr. Gary North has written a book titled uh, Conspiracy in Philadelphia. Ted Wayland has done a, a remarkable series also. Uh, I think his was con titled Constitution versus Biblical Law. So that's just a couple of recent examples or a couple of examples, but I've uh, uh, certainly past many others in the course of the last 10 or 15, 20 years even. Uh, I was coming across some information from a Dr. Lutz and a Dr. Heinemann who did a study of the framers' thoughts. Uh, in other words, they wanted to determine what kind of things these uh, framers actually thought about, what kind of you know literature and so forth they used in forming their ideas and so forth. And they studied about 15,000 items, according to the record, 2,200 books and pamphlets and articles between 1760 and 1805. And they found that a full third, 33%, came from the Bible. However, this means that two-thirds came from other sources. Just like today's Christians do away with two-thirds of the Bible, we may well see that two-thirds of other sources had a greater influence on the framers. John Jay wrote in a letter to Jedediah Morris, quote, Uninspired commentators have dishonored the law by ascribing to it, in certain cases, a sense and meaning which it did not authorize and which our Savior rejected and reproved. The inspired prophets, on the contrary, express the most exalted ideas of the law. They declare that the law of the Lord is perfect, 
that the statutes of the Lord are right, the commandment of the Lord is pure, that God would magnify the law and make it honorable, end quote. Now that, of course, is predominantly from Psalms chapter 19, verses 7 through 11. John Jay did not sign the declaration as he had returned to New York to draft that state's constitution. In 1777, the New York Supreme Court uh, had appointed John Jay, and uh, he also spent time in 1781 drafting the treaty with England, and at 1784 he was the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, and from 1790 to 1795 he served as the Supreme Court Chief Justice, and then he resigned to be Governor of New York for two terms. William Blackstone also, John Locke, Charles de Montesquieu, heavily conveyed the Bible in their thinking, we have been told. In fact, at Federalist number 81, Franklin, in a letter to Ezra Stiles, president of Yale University, wrote, Here's my creed. I believe in one God, the creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render to him is in doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. This I take to be the fundamental points in sound religion. Now, so that no one should misunderstand, it's important that we raise this caveat. We're no less the hypocrites as Christ labeled them 2,022 years ago. I believed what I was told and what I was taught until I began to more earnestly study God's word 30 years ago. And I dare say no one should be incensed by what is conveyed in this series if they will also diligently search his word. By the time I was 25, my world was being rocked by the reality that Article 1, Section 10 said no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a payment and tender of debt. Well, how could this be? Creations of the state, 501c3s, and a number of other constitutional inconsistencies were also coming to my mind. Then, 20 years of talk radio, not to worry about billions in debt, and 20 years later, we're now $20 trillion in debt. Well, the answer is we need more conservatives, better leaders who abide by their oath, etc. I also was coming to the knowledge and the conclusion that people in the organized churches have been misleading us for centuries concerning nearly everything from A to Z in our Bible and our Christian duty. I began to ask myself how much of what I had always believed about the framers of the Constitution and the eloquent oratory and the ingeniousness of their ideas, was also misleading. Oh, I know, I've read the quotes, I've read the Barton books and many, many others. But I had never read any of the original source documents so as to put everything in proper context. In the end, to say that those men of that constitutional America era were ungodly or in a Masonic conspiracy of their own, I'll leave to those authors and those proponents. What I simply ask those who will listen to these messages to the end is, 
What is the fruit of the document? Do not think in your mind or heart to answer me saying, Well, Doug, man is corrupt. It's his sinful nature. To say that acknowledges that whatever document we draft to govern ourselves, it is destined to failure because of that, quote, nature, and that we are therefore incapable of following Yahweh our God. Over and over again throughout the scriptures, we've been taught that obedience to our Creator's divine immutable laws, statutes, and judgments will lead to life and life abundantly. That is positive law. I know there will be many asking, well, who are you and what makes you now think that you're now the smartest man in the room? And the answer is nothing. And I don't believe that. To begin with, the story of the gospel message does not begin in the New Testament. And it's broader in scope than limited. Therefore, we will begin with it. Then we will look at what we have been led to believe is the impetus of the underlying principles of the Constitution. We will get into God's divine plan to use a people to bless the world. Exodus 19.5, we are told to obey and keep the covenant. These people would be a peculiar treasure unto him above all the people, for the, all the earth is his. We find similar assertions at Deuteronomy 7.6 and 14.2. If we go to Deuteronomy 27.8, Deuteronomy 28 and 29, we see the blessings and curses. We see the, the 12 tribes split in two, to one side be on Mount Ebal and one side on Mount Gerizim. Confession and proclamation. What we see in the biblical record is that four empires arise out of Israel's failures. The first is Babylon. It reigns for 75 to 100 years. Secondly is Persian, reigning for around 200 years and brings terror upon the land. Alexander the Great, about 170 years, from Europe to India. And the fourth one, Rome, which encompassed the largest territory. rather. All told, there's about 1,000 years or 35 generations. Deuteronomy 28:64-7. God says that he will scatter thee among all the peoples. You'll find no ease. You'll grow weary and sorrowful, trembling of heart. Your life is going to hang in doubt in morning and in night. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 9, we are told of a future return to God, where we would once again obey his voice and command. Verse 3 of that same scripture, it talks of a regathering. In 1783, Ezra Stiles, while president of Yale, addressing Connecticut legislature and governor, stated, quote, The U.S. is elevated to glory and honor, quote, end quote, citing Deuteronomy 30, verses 3 to 9, as a regathering of the remnant of Israel. We are told in Scripture of a new Zion. There are, there are 33 verses giving that definition of Zion. Isaiah 2, 3, 4, 3, 4, 4, 10, 12, 24, 23, 31, 9, 37, 22, and 32, 40, verse 9, 41, 27, 52, 1, and 64, 10. In the book of Lamentations, we have 1, 17, 2, 10, and 13. In the book of Amos, 1, 2, Joel 2, 32, 3, 16, 17. In the book of Micah, 3, 10, and 12, 4, 2, and 8. The book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 14 and 16. The book of Zechariah, 1, 14 and 17, 8, 3, 9, 9. 
Psalms 51:18, 102 verse 21, 128 verse 5, 147 verse 12. In 1759 to 60, the English clergyman Andrew Burnaby visited the colonies and said, quote, "An idea has entered the minds that empire is traveling westward, and an impatient expectation when America is to give the law to the rest of the world." End quote. Clearly from Isaiah 2:3. 1799, Reverend Abiel Abbott. Thanksgiving Address, quote, Our American Israel is a term frequently used and common consent allows it apt and proper, end quote. Jonathan Edwards, quote, God presently goes about doing something great in order to make way for the introduction of the church's latter-day glory, which is to have its first seat in and is to rise from this new world. I think if we consider the circumstances of the New England settlement to be the place where this work shall principally take its rise, end quote. 1820, Jefferson, quote, If freedom of religion can prevail and the genuine doctrine of Jesus will again be restored to their original purity, this reformation will advance, but too late for me to witness it, end quote. That from a letter to Jarrett Sparks. In Daniel 2.44, we are told that the kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, the whole of the Midwest and the North American continent encompassed 8,000 miles circumference, and by the, nearly, by the early 1800s, it had grown from 150 people to over 5 million inhabitants. It was the most beneficent and largest territory in climate, soil, minerals, and environmental wealth. There were seven colleges founded in the colonial period. Harvard in 1636 at Cambridge, Massachusetts was funded by congregational churches. Yale in 1701 in New Haven, Connecticut, funded by the congregational churches. Princeton in 1746 in Princeton, New Jersey, was funded by the Presbyterian churches. Columbia in 1754, New York City, it was funded by the Episcopalian churches. Brown University, 1764, in Providence, Rhode Island, funded by the Baptists. Sixth, uh, Rutgers, 1766, uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey. Uh, it was uh, funded by the uh, Dutch Reformed. Dartmouth College, 1769, Hanover, New Hampshire, funded by the Congregational Churches. So this is what was going on in America. But this had begun in the 1500s and carried through to the 16th and 1700s. But what was happening is, slowly but surely, there was being a change that was brewing. And I think as we get into this series, you begin to see what change was brewing. I noted from 1982 Parade Magazine, it wasn't the original purpose of the article, but the article was during the uh, talking about a period during the American Revolution and that there was a movement to make Hebrew the official language. Many colleges made the Hebrew required a course and people wanted to read the Bible in the original tongue. And until 1812, the annual commencement address was delivered in Hebrew. And these are some things that we we don't know because these are not the things that we've been taught. 
1639, Reverend Thomas Hooker, the first uh, wrote what was constituted as the first written constitution in America. It was called the Fundamental Agreement or Original Constitution of the Colony of New Haven, uh, June 4, 1639. And later, Connecticut copied it uh, as well. But one of the interesting things about this is these are the things that we have not been told and taught about. In the 1639, they posited a, a series of queries. For example, query number one, whether the scriptures do hold forth a perfect rule for the direction and government of all men in all duties which they are to perform to God and men, as well in families and commonwealth and matters of the church. This was assented unto by all. Query two, whereas there was a covenant solemnly made by the whole assembly of free planters of the plantation, the first day of the extraordinary humiliation which we had after we came together, that as in matters that concern the gathering and ordering of a church, so likewise in all public officers which concern civil order as choice of magistrates and officers, making and repealing uh, laws, dividing allotments of inheritance and all things of like nature, we would all of us be ordered and confined to do gathered according to God. Now, I've skipped a little bit there so I could get through a greater portion of that. Uh, query three, those who have desired to be received as free planters are settled, uh, that they may be admitted into a church fellowship according to Christ as soon as God shall fit them hereunto, or desire to express it by holding up of hands. Accordingly, all did express this to be their desire and purpose by holding up their hands twice. Uh, query 5, um, uh, then Mr. Davenport declared unto them by the scripture what kind of persons might best be trusted with matters of government, and by sundry arguments from the scripture proved that such men as were described in Exodus 18, uh, 2, um, Deuteronomy 1.13 with Deuteronomy 17, and First, uh, I believe it's First Corinthians six one six and seven ought to be entrusted by them. So there were there were a lot of uh, of references to the biblical aspects of divine law, and this is hardly ever taught uh, at all anymore, and certainly uh, has been passed off as being non-existent and certainly inconsistent with our Constitution. And some things began to happen with some of the thinking. And it had a lot to do with what was going on at the time. And some of what was going on and the various nuances and so forth of the age we'll get into as we go along. But we'll suffice that for part one in this series, America's Constitutional Idolatry, and we'll pick it back up in part two. Once again, I remain thankful for the opportunity to minister under those of the New Covenant as Hebrews 8.8 8 informed us of. This is Doug Nelson, trusting you will hear these words one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. 